players gather to cast powerful spells. Some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Gravecrawler, Liliana, Defiant Necromancer, Atraxa, Grand Unifier, and many others. Battling head-to-head -head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by The Minds Behind, Bosch and Rowling YouTube, Thurabian University, and TheEpicStorm.com. This episode is sponsored by Eminence Gaming. Hello, and welcome to episode 92 of the Eternal Glory Podcast, Should Competitive Players Go to a Magic Con? We've already recorded 30 minutes of introductions and banter for the week, available in our supporter-exclusive pre-show. Check out patreon.com slash eternalglory to gain access, or join as a YouTube member for the same content on YouTube instead. I'm Phil, I was right about Atraxa, Gallagher, joined by... Uh, Brian Koval, a.k.a. Boston Roll, a.k.a. No Horse in This Atraxa Race. And I am Brant Cook of the what the fuck are you talking about Phil.com. But Phil, you've already made me angry. You were not right about Atraxa. We're three weeks in. I think that if there if anyone is going to be right, it's going to be six months from now when Atraxa is a one of and Gristlebrand is still a four of. Get the fuck out of here, Phil. Come on. Oh, this is this is great. All right. We've got the blood pumping. Let's do it. First, uh, we want to go ahead and thank our patrons. Brian, take us away. Uh new patrons and YouTube members. Those are now the same thing in our minds and hearts we got cleo and bobbio 2014 from, since the last episode if you want to support this channel and get access to our 30 minute banter beforehand that's why phil and brian are so riled up already that might have felt like a hot start to you but we're already engines roaring if you want that check out the patreon or click join on our youtube i'd like to pretend that bobby yo 2014 is actually just someone who is nine years old that's a really big fan that spends their allowance to support us yeah they get five dollars a month and they give it to us that's the <laughs> way to live your life i will take any nine-year-old's money another great way to live your life playing vintage do you like vintage do you like philadelphia or live near it how would you like to play a proxy-friendly Vintage 1K at Punt City 2 on Sunday, March 26th? Visit eminence.events for details about this event, as well as info on their proxy policy. This is capped at 64 players, and many Eminence events have sold out, so register now if you're interested. Some free advice. Play Tinker. That's it. That's the advice. Just make sure Tinker is in your deck. I'm not going to argue with that at all. Yeah, as much as I love Staxi bullshit, Tinker's really fucking good, folks. I might have told this story after our uh, Eternal Weekend episode, but I'm going to tell it again now because we're talking about Vintage. I only played against the Initiative once at Eternal Weekend, and I was on Grix's Tinker Breach. In game one, I kept a sort of medium speed hand. My opponent resolved to turn one Thalia, and I was like, oh, bummer. That's what you're doing. And then in game two, I knew what they were doing, and I turn one comboed them. And then in game three, I knew what they were doing, and I turn one comboed them again. However, they had the mind break trap, so I had to spend a turn mystical tutoring to turn two combo them again. Nice mono white deck, idiot. Play Tinker. 
co-signed. Today's episode is going to start with a discussion of MagicCon Philly, because two of our spiky spiky tournament players here attended Philly as purely casual players, uh, you know, barely even playing in any sanctioned events at all. And we want to know, like, will you enjoy the same sort of experience? Then we're going to talk about uh, some of our first impressions with some cards from Phyrexia All Will Be One in Legacy, now that we've actually had a chance to play with them. And if we have a little time with the episode, we might dabble into some CEDH hot takes and thoughts. So spoiler, as we were creating this episode, I mentioned that I had watched coverage and Phil goes, oh yeah, there was a PT, wasn't there? Yeah, I will say my experience on site. So to fill everyone in, uh, Phil and I, Brian, attended MagicCon Philly both of us as content creators with access to the command zone. I signed up for only one event the entire weekend, and it was the most casual event imaginable, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. And I played no sanctioned magic, nothing that gave out real prizes of any kind, no aspirations to profit on the weekend, a thing that I've never done before. And that was my experience there. And multiple times I would, someone would, I would be scrolling Twitter between EDH turns or something, and someone would be like, oh my god, that coverage match was amazing. And I'm like, oh yeah, there is an actual paper Pro Tour being streamed just upstairs from me right now. Or I'd be out to dinner, and the table across from me would have you know, Paulo Vitor Domodorosa at it. I'm like, oh yeah, there's a Pro Tour in town right now. And then I would immediately forget again, which that's the scope of MagicCon. The, the Pro Tour, which is you know, the catalyst for my interest in magic for many years was happening in the same building. And I was only tertiarily aware of it and did not really care what was going on at all. So let's let's jump around a little bit from our intended schedule here, since we've already kind of started here. Um, I want to talk about the hall itself. So the convention center was divided so that the event itself was super well spaced out. Uh, essentially, there's like five main areas. There's a main hall, which has like the vendors and some other stuff there that we'll talk about in other parts of the cast. It has the command zone. There is a tournament slash on-demand area. There are a handful of free play areas where you can just do whatever you want. And then there was a separate area on a different floor for the pro tour. So essentially, there were like five different primary places that you could go to play Magic where you might not even interact with a giant portion of the people who were there right the room that i and and you were in most of the weekend i spent all day friday in the the sort of main hall where the artists were and they had these cool things set up they had like a scale model of the weather light which is still significantly larger than a human but not big enough to actually ride into the sky on there were scenes set up uh there was like the olvenwald a bar on New Capenna, a Strixhaven professor's study, something from Kaladesh. And there were tables inside these places. You could just sit down at a four-person table and play EDH in the Olvenwald. That sort of stuff was happening, and the command zone was on this floor too. I spent the whole day doing that, and at the end of the day, I caught up with my friends who were downstairs grinding a PTQ. Had to find where that room was because I didn't even know. I had to go down an escalator to find it. And I walked into... A gigantic Grand Prix style magic hall that looked like what anyone who's played a tournament in the last 20 years would expect. It was just tables and chairs as far as the eye can see, gathering points, speaker boxes, and a central stage where you sign up for events and the judges work out of. 
So there was that whole experience that you would expect at a magic gathering happening in just one of the four places you could be. And then there were unique things happening in all the other ones. Yeah, I had everything in this section under the bullet point of just comfort. Magic Con Philly just physically felt good. Many of you who are longtime tournament players, like, you know what it's like to be just absolutely packed in a room. There's just like too many people. It's too hot. Everything kind of just like smells a little bit. At MagicCon Philly, most of the time when I was playing, there weren't people next to me other than the four, like the three people that I was playing against. Like, and oftentimes there was an entire like table between me and the next group of people that were playing. Like it was very spacious. It was very comfortable. If you're, you know, very anxious about covid still masks were required for entry to the hall now i'm not going to claim that everyone was wearing them the entire time because you know you kind of know how people are but the vast majority of people were masked the like most of the time that we were there it was very comfortable like i just felt good when i was there from an outside perspective i wasn't there but from the sounds of it there was these five areas that all seemed rather large my first initial thought is over the COVID lockdown, the judge policy or whatever you would like to call it shifted where they got rid of like a lot of the upper judges. I think like the most you can be now is a level three and there's like a judges academy that you can sign up for, which left me thinking if there's five rooms, how was the judging situation on the weekend between the five different halls? Did it feel like there was always a judge there? Did you struggle? Like, how was that? The judges kicked serious fucking ass. Although the judges that were in the area that I was playing in most of the time weren't doing normal judge stuff. So when you think of judges at a competitive REL event, they are there to answer your rules questions. They are there to, you know, pick up pairing sheets, get the event turning over, all that sort of stuff. At MagicCon Philly, the biggest thing that judges were doing in the command zone was getting people paired into pods. They were running around with these signs, like casual or competitive, and like physically saying, oh, you're looking for a game. You're looking for this type of game. I'm going to get you over to these people who need one more person. They were there offering like, hey, would you like to play with some like plane chase cards for your game of commander? Like you can try these out. The judges had the time to focus on player experience more so than rulings. Like you could still ask them for rulings and stuff, but they did a great job of just being like pseudo PR people. Yeah, that was the experience of the command zone. I only played one event down in the tournament hall, and it seemed to be well-staffed. I didn't have any judge questions myself, but the event that I played in, uh, we'll talk about this now. This was one of the bullets anyway. This is a good segue. It was Unknown with Gavin Verhe. The premise, the elevator pitch of this event is you don't know what it is, and we're not going to tell you what it is. You just pay your entry free and show up, and we'll take care of you. It turned out what it was, was a Mirans versus Phyrexians team event. My event had about 300 players in it, including Mark Rosewater, Aaron Forsyth, uh, Watsy staff just kicking around in the trenches, building sealed decks with the rest of us. The sealed pool was three packs of Phyrexia All Will Be One, one set booster of Phyrexia All Will Be One, two mystery booster convention packs, and one playtest card pack that were literally the way that they test cards inside Watsi. They were printed out and stickered on to existing magic cards and you could feel them. Like if you've opened mystery boosters, 
the like playtest cards are just printed, but they look like a piece of paper stuck onto a card, but it's all printed. These were actual pieces of paper slapped onto cards. And it was a 60 card set that Gavin had cooked up. They were unique mechanics that like, this card can't be in your deck unless you're on the Mirren team. If you win with this card in play, score one point for Phyrexia. And the event was scored. A match win was worth three points for Phyrexia or Mirrodin, depending on which team you were on. And it was rolling pairings. Like as soon as you're done, you walk up, you report your result. Somebody types in what team got what points. And then they pair you up with another Phyrexian and send you to a table to go play another one. And this took a lot of judge and staff coordination because there needed to be a results line. Uh, you got 200 prize wall tickets for a loss and 1,200 for a win. So somebody had to get your results, pay out your packs, pair you with the appropriate team, and then find somewhere for you to sit. And all of that happened really smoothly for a thing that had never been done before and specifically could not be run through tournament software. This sounds pretty cool. I think there were a lot of other just like really cool experiences for being there hearing about some of the stuff from march of the machines coming out in real time with thousands of other magic nerds around you was just so crazy and, and similarly with like people getting really excited about like reduke winning the the pro tour and that sort of stuff there was something special about just being around that many people as like important stuff was happening in the magic community yeah the room with all of the the worlds that you could sit and play magic in is where I spent my whole day Sunday morning. And you could see the panels being held from that area. It was on the other side of the same room. And I was just playing commander. And every couple of minutes, there would be just a raucous hooting and hollering applause as they preview new cards from the new set. Like when they previewed all the team up cards like Thalia and the Gitrog monster Yargle and Multani, you got a real like sports entertainment cheer from the crowd, like, oh my god, Yargle and Multani, like deafening roar. Uh when the invasion cards were spoiled, like invasion of Shar of Alara, invasion of Lorwyn, invasion of Amonkhet, people were losing their minds. It was just really cool to, you know, feel that through the room. I wasn't even involved in it. I was on the other side of the room and I take my glasses off when I play magic because I don't need them up close. I kept having to like grab my glasses and put it back on and look across the room at what everyone was cheering for because I wanted to be part of it too. And that just that vibe is really cool. As someone who is home, I did watch coverage. I mean, I won't lie to you and pretend that I watched every single round, but I watched a lot of it. And it was cool seeing some of the trailers and cards being previewed on coverage. And honestly, it just felt really great being able to watch paper magic again on stream over you know the covid lockdown we had the arena stuff but i'll be honest i'm not really an arena person i played in an arena pt but only because i had to and i'm just not a big fan of arena in general but seeing coverage that used the arena setup for paper was beautiful there was a lot of people in twitch chat that were really upset they're like why are we viewing it top down instead of side to side because that's how they showcased coverage during the arena era but honestly it was just better 
And it, I won't pretend that it was perfect. They started with a really wide shot. They had like torn sleeves and like soda bottles on the side and like papers and pens and stuff. And it looked a little rugged, but by the end of the event, they had it nice and cropped in where you were only getting the play space and you could actually read the cards that like Reed Duke was playing in, in his hands. And it was just so crisp and like everything you wanted out of magic coverage out of the last few years. And I thought it was just a really great production. I also thought it was cool how like Brian's describing, they're like talking about the invasion of whatever, and they would have trailers for this and it would be like, you know, Thalia riding Gitrog or whatever in the preview. And I'm just like, wow, this is really high production quality that they made for this preview. And you check the Twitch chat and they're just like, Maverick trying to be Marvel again, sad. Uh, so like you have to remember that the trolls on Twitch aren't the greater audience here. It's just people that are unhappy with their lives. And what you're seeing is actually really awesome. And that's like what the majority of people want to see is like Madrick becoming a Marvel competitor or something along those lines. Right. And you telling me that made me a little annoyed. Uh, I know better than to be annoyed at people on the internet, but Remember when you're in those spaces, whether it's Twitch chat or Twitter or Reddit or whatever, that's a self-selecting community of people who feel like they have things that need to be said and the motivation to log in and say them. The average Magic player, the person walking around on the floor of Magic on Philly, was having a great time and loves Magic. And so do I, and so do you probably. Don't get caught up in that bullshit. Magic on Philly was the happiest event that I have ever been to. Like, I have never been around so many Magic players who were just fucking having the time of their life. I played with so many casual players, you know, had never met them before. They didn't know who I was, who were just there to just, like, play EDH. And everyone was just having a great time. Like, they were well-fed. They were relaxed. A lot of times when you go to a competitive tournament... Like, you have to be careful between rounds or you'll just, like, end up in, like, a bad beats and salt stories loop. There was none of that. There was so much more like, oh, man, look at this awesome card that I just pulled. Oh, man, here's how I lost to this person doing this crazy combo thing last game. Everyone just had a good time. There were cosplayers everywhere. Like, some of them sponsored, some of them not. There were staff and content creators and businesses handing out free products including like some absolutely crazy like numbered secret lair shivan dragons that people are absolutely going wild over it was an incredible experience i'm going to ask a question here and i don't mean to sound negative but you two were sponsored creators you had command zone access did you feel a divide between people who had command zone access and those that were only able to play in the free play areas that wanted to play commander? No, because the free play areas were so extensive that the command zone basically emptied out and they all just decided to meet their friends out there. Even people who had command zone access were posting up in free play. Honestly, it was the free play was so extensive. I was upset on behalf of anyone who did pay for the command zone. It was like, why did, why would is anyone charged for this? Uh, and I know the answer, uh, you know, because it's money in the pocket. And Phil did say that they had judges pairing pods for people who didn't come with three friends. I'm sure that's a service that's valuable to someone. But in general, you could post up anywhere and people were happy to just go sit somewhere else to play. One of the things that stung me at one point was 
somebody was looking for me and couldn't get to me because I was sitting in the command zone. And I didn't find out about it until like an hour or more later. And it was just like, man, I wish I could go to where Phil and Brian were right now, but I don't have that ticket. That hurt a little bit as someone who was a sponsored content creator. Like, oh, I was put in a space where my fans can't necessarily get to me. That that felt super weird to me. There is a feedback form for Philly. And one of the things that I submitted as feedback was like, hey, if you're going to charge people for the command zone, make sure there's something there that is a cultivated experience that makes it worth people's ticket price. And, you know, that can be any number of things. If I was Wizards of the Coast and I'm working on the marketing team or whatever team is in charge of making these events, you they took a loss on giving content creators free access to the command zone. I would market the command zone as a way to face your favorite creators. I don't know if I'd necessarily put Brian Koval's face on the poster. I mean, I would personally do that for mine. But in general, I think that that would be a great way of like, oh, I'd love to face Thraven U in a CDH pod. Yes, I'll pay for the uh, command zone pass. But I think just like advertising it as a way to play CDH at the event, like at least from the outside looking in, once again, I was not there, seems a little bit wrong. When in reality, it seemed like it was a lot of creators in that area, plus like people that had paid. Am I wrong? Am I off base here? Uh, you're not off base. Like everyone who is anyone in EDH was in the command zone. Like I saw Kibler and Olivia in there. Sheldon was in there. Mana Curves, Shiv and Bot. Like all the people who you associate with the commander spaces spent time in the command zone. The problem with the thing that you said of like face your favorite creator is at some point a content creator invite moves from a marketing opportunity like they let us in so we would tweet about it to our large audiences that is transactional already if you want me to make myself available with my limited time surrounded by my friends to game with randos now you're hiring me to do something else spell slinging was popular back in the day like they would just have pros and magic celebrities at a table with a with a line and you would line up and battle them and you get a pack if you win or whatever that's kind of what that sounds like but the the nebulous promise of there will probably be content creators in there if you can get up game with them i had to say no to a lot of people because i was just you know busy my dance card was full uh, sorry to everyone who didn't get a game with me who wanted one but three days goes by fast in that environment on average, I probably played seven or eight, seven or eight games of Commander per day while I was there. And, you know, each one of those lasts an hour. So, like, I was playing Magic basically at every point that I wasn't eating. And I still didn't get in games with everyone who requested them. And, like, I, I truly tried. Yeah, I mean, if I were ever in a position where Wizards of the Coast thought that I would sell tickets by paying me to be there and sit in a chair and spell sling uh, for anyone who wants to line up or sign up to do that. I'd love to do that. But I mean, that's not me. That would be like, you know, Sheldon or Kibler or whatever. Uh, but that would be a cool way to sell that experience. All right. So like overall, Philly was one of the best magic events that I've ever attended. Like I, I loved this event. Like it very much like reignited my fire. I've been a little down on legacy recently, personally, especially after seeing the return of a paper pro tour, like a whole bunch of spoilers with cards that I'm invested in, just meeting so many people excited about magic. Like I'm so fired up right now. Like all I want to do is like record and work hard and get to the point where it's like, all right, 
I'm back at a creator at another one of these in three months. Yeah, the one thing that I will say, like the one you know, gray lining of this beautiful cloud is historically, there's a level that some players hit, many players never hit it, and there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, I've been at a point at least for six or seven years where there's a good chance my trip will be paid for by the event uh, through min caching the event or a top eight or even spiking the whole thing. There's a good chance I will come home with more money than I left with. And doing what we did this weekend, that will not happen. Just 0%. My trip, including the content creator badge, like I got in for free. My trip was probably six or $700, all things said. And if I had bought a badge too, it would have been 800 to 1000 depending on what level badge I bought. Uh, which, you know, that's a, that's a vacation. That's a family vacation for someone or a couple's retreat for uh, a week in the summer. There's real cost to that. If you are the type of grinder who expects to get their money back at least over a year, like nobody wins everyone, but you know, at regular performance levels over time, you'll eventually come out positive. This experience might not satisfy what you want, but if you need to refill your battery on, oh yeah, I do freaking love magic, uh, then... I think it's money well spent. So I normally don't like to read people's tweets, but this thread was so good that I shared it to a Discord earlier today. It was from Twitter user at everyone when the second E is a three. I'd recommend checking out their thread. It was their experience paying for a VIP badge and everything that happened with that throughout the weekend. And this sort of stuff I don't normally like to draw attention to, but it was so insightful about, hey, they are someone with high income. This is something that they would typically pay for and what they expected versus what they gained. Like they expected to not have to wait in lines. They expected a VIP lounge with like snacks and stuff. And then what they shared was what they actually received and how it didn't quite live up to what they were paying for. And they had some other people like Brian Kipler chiming in in the comments as well. And this sort of thread is something I think wizards could actually learn a lot from because these are the people that are paying to go into these spaces. Like you two received the content creator uh, badge, but this person paid the the $700 to get the VIP or whatever. And ultimately uh, they said it in their thread, but they're subsidizing the event for some other people by paying that much for the gain very little, I guess is what I'm trying to say here. Yeah, it did seem like be this being my job and uh, these magic trips being tax deductible and stuff, uh, I'm able to consider the Black Lotus badge, which was the 700, maybe 750, whatever that cost. I did really look at the list of what every badge gives you before I knew I was approved to for the content creator pass. The Black Lotus badge, it, it just seemed like they doubled your entry swag. So you get like two playmats instead of one, four packs of mystery booster instead of two. Uh, it just looked really anemic. And there was like an invite to some Watsy party. But uh, depending on how intimate that is, like, is that? 35 people in a room where you really get to interface with Watsi designers and Watsi staff and whoever in an intimate setting? Or is it like 150 people in the room where those people are like up on a podium waving down to you? Like, what is this like influencer or important person VIP party actually? So it was really hard to understand 
what I would be paying $700 for. And I did not do it, obviously. Yeah, as a minor note on this, um, some of the bags, the swag bags, actually didn't have all of the stuff, which was a little disappointing. So, like, some of the content creator swag bags had, like, these awesome, like, Magic the Gathering branded battery packs. Some of them had promos that others didn't. Um, minor minor complaint on my end. Like, I would have loved to have walked away with a foil arcane signet that was, like, the swag of the weekend or that battery pack. Yeah, I didn't get those things either. Uh, I heard that by the end of Saturday, some creators weren't even getting bags. It was just like, yeah, we ran out of that stuff for you, which makes me, I mean, this is on Readpop's side. This isn't Watsy. Readpop is who they contract to run the event. And they've clearly are just sort of fly by the seat of their pants in some regards. Like if you don't have the the swag bag to give out to every creator you brought on why didn't you cap lower like did you let 100 creators in when you only had 75 bags or whatever uh did you just approve everyone uh, i don't know that that sort of stuff makes me feel like it's being run a little shoddily behind the scenes even though it did look good every like minute of the day walking around felt okay there's there are those like rough edges I'm hoping this is growing pains and that a lot of this gets smoothed over. Like, I have a very strong impression of this event, despite some little things going. I don't even know that it goes so far as going wrong, just not quite being perfect here and there. This was way better than Vegas. I was at both. And that description of comfort that you brought on earlier of like, uh, you're just you're shoved in like cattle, elbows to assholes. uh you can't even tell who's in line for what because everything's too close to each other and you're sweaty. And that's what Vegas was. It was honestly pretty bad. Uh, and Philly did not feel like that. So this is the second one that they've ever done. And it was better than the first one. So trajectory is in the right direction. My complaint as someone who did not go to the event, and I mean, take this with a grain of salt, was that the coverage teams, so you would have Marshall and... Uh, Humph. I can't think of his real name right now. What is it? Uh, Dave Humphreys. No. Oh, Paul Cheon. Humph. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm sorry. I can't believe I forgot Paul Cheon's name. And then. Well, there is a Humphreys on coverage. <laughs> I, I forgot when you said Humph. I was like, what the hell? Uh, Humph. Yeah, Paul Cheon. Forgive me, but you would have these coverage teams, and in the past they would be with their backs facing towards a large tournament hall and you could see people walking around or stuff. And it reminds me a lot of like what SEG used to do for all of their invitationals. Well, for this pro tour, they would just have like a curtain that was like directly behind them with very poor lighting. And it just felt like they were in someone's closet. And it felt like as a viewer, most of the time you're looking at the on field battle but when they would turn back to them, you would be reminded that they were like in someone's closet with no lights on. And it just it made it feel a little bit less special. I would have liked to have seen the commentators have a nicer space where they weren't just like in a dark corner, super far away from everything. It felt a little weird. Yeah, I didn't get a good layout. I walked into the Pro Tour room one time and it was after hours when everyone was gone. So I don't even know where things were set up. But the Pro Tour was condensed to one ballroom in the convention center and i don't know where coverage was in relevance to that uh like were they in the same room and they had to be sort of boxed up to be kept quiet so the players couldn't hear them 
or were they in literally a closet nearby or whatever? I actually don't know how that was set up, but, but yeah, it, it was always cool when you could like wave behind the commentators. You're just standing behind like Cedric and Maria and Marshall and everyone. And you're on camera waving to the fans at home. That That is a cool aspect that I didn't realize was missing because I was there and didn't watch coverage. Speaking of cool aspects, and Brian, I know that you've been playing for a long time as well, but it felt awesome watching Reed Duke, someone that a lot of us grew up watching on the Star City circuit. I mean, I'm a very similar age to Reed, but I would watch Reed on camera on Star Cities. We've watched Reed grow, and now we've watched Reed win the Pro Tour. We saw Cedric, you know, really get a start commentating for SCG. Now he's commentating for the Pro Tour. Like, seeing these evolutions from a viewer over time feels amazing. And I really do love some of the stuff that the Wizards team has brought because, well, it's weird to say, but, like, Star City really did have a huge impact on Magic in those 20-teens years. And just bringing those people in that really shined, I felt, was great. Yeah, I saw Rashad Miller on site, uh, original GG's Live person gg's live which was the thing that created video coverage that was bought and turned into scg live and etc rashad kicking around doing coverage was was a throwback to 2009 it was awesome speaking of which uh there's a twitch channel that is gg's live that is up 24 7 just rolling old gg's live footage if you're interested just throwing that out there. All right. Any final thoughts on Philly or should we move into Phyrexia? All will be one in legacy. Let's become complete. All right. So do we want to start with the Atraxa fight or do we want to end there? Phil, you are fucking wrong. All right. Settle down, boys. <laughs> okay. If you want to hear our full preview, all will be one episode. That was our previous episode. We talked in depth about what we think things are going to do. Now we're two weeks later, we've actually played most of these cards, have real table experience, metagames developing, etc. No longer theoretical. And I'll set the stage by saying, Phil last time claimed that Atraxa might be the best thing to ever put into play. And Bryant said, you're crazy, Grizzlebrand will never be dethroned. And the, the last two weeks of information have uh, not really proven either side. So go ahead, carry on with your argument. I will say this, the first Saturday challenge that existed post-podcast episode, there was a blue-black reanimator list with four Troxa and a single copy of Gristlebrand that took second place. I would also like to note that we are in the preliminary testing period where people love to try out new things regardless of how good it is. And I think that it's we're living in a world in which Phil could be right. I don't think Phil's stance is completely outlandish. But I also think deciding any verdict two weeks out isn't realistic. I think six months from now, if people are playing four Gristlebrand, one Atroxa, that's what I would guess on. But I think it's going to take some time for people to get the numbers right. That is my actual rational take. In the meantime, the short term, people are playing Atroxa left and right, myself included. Uh, I will let Phil now take the floor and I will do any possible rebuttals after. My YouTube comments lost their goddamn minds when it took me two turns of magic to find a spot that Atraxa was better than Grizzlebrand. I was under the gun against initiative in my first match that I ever played with Atraxa, and like 
my life total was under pressure. I wouldn't have been able to draw any cards with Grizzlebrand. Atraxa drew me four or five cards and stabilized my life total and won me that game, whereas Grizzlebrand wouldn't have done it. Generally speaking, I have been very happy with Atraxa over Grizzlebrand in non-turn one scenarios. I think if your plan is like, be the black red reanimator deck and like go as fast as you can at cheating something into play grizzlebrand probably goes harder because you're better at that like grief unmask sort of scenario but if you are going to settle in for a slightly longer game in any capacity atraxa is so good like it's great as a show and tell sneak attack natural order target in a way that i don't think grizzlebrand is as consistently good at doing I've also played a lot of Atraxa over the last couple of weeks. I mean, the content creator life, am I right? And one thing yep. that I found that I really struggle with is that, or I almost said Demir, is it Delver's the best deck in the format? Is it Delver happens to play a full play set of Pyroblast effects? And it was really hard getting my Atraxa into play to begin with, only to have them Pyroblast it. The Atraxa, when it enters, you know, it digs that 10 deep. But you would have to find a force effect off that that would count as your instant. And then you'd have to pray to hit your ponder for the blue card or whatever sorcery blue card you're playing. So it could be an expressive iteration. I don't know why you'd have expressive iteration in your Troxa deck, but maybe you do. But you'd have to hit a blue sorcery, which wasn't always easy. And it's not good at protecting itself, I guess is what I'm trying to say here. Like Gristlebrand has some built-in protection because you can just dig 14 deep or whatever. And with Atroxa, I consistently found it dying or being answered or bounced or whatever, just because it doesn't, well, while you look 10 deep, you don't actually get as many cards. Or if you do, they sometimes can't all go to your hand due to the type requirement. And it was just really problematic for me. Yeah, ultimately kind of where I'm at is this isn't an either or situation. It's 100% like if you're playing a fat sneaky deck of some kind, like you are probably going to want access to both of these cards in some number. I don't think one of these eliminates the other and completely it's just like this card is invalid. Uh, so like today's video that I released was blue black re reanimator with no grizzle brands for Atraxa. Like it probably should have had one grizzle brand, but I really wanted to see like, hey, is it reasonable to play this deck without grizzle brand? And the answer was a resounding yes. Is it better to play it with at least one Grizzlebrand? Yeah, yeah, probably. I think one thing that's really interesting to think about this entire conversation, and Phil, if you're right in six months, I'm happy for you. I honestly don't care all that much. But it's been a decade of Grizzlebrand. Like, probably, it's actually 11 or 12 years at this point. I believe Grizzlebrand came out in 2011. If not, it was like early 2012. And it's taken that long for something to come out that is even within the conversation of gristle brand. And we also just like, we're wrapping up fire design. So throughout the entire fire period, we never hit anything that came close to gristle brand until Atraxa. Think about how long it's been since we've come to something with that power level. I think that's actually kind of sweet. That said, a lot of our listenership and, you know, people that play legacy, and I'm sorry if I offend anyone here, it's just kind of the truth. You get really butthurt whenever something is better than an old nostalgic card that you really love. And I think over the last handful of years, we've seen a lot of fan favorites become no longer playable. People love their predicts. They love their dresses, but they're not just, they're not viable anymore. And if Atroxa truly is better than Grizzlebrand, will people be upset about that a year from now? I remember Grizzlebrand was the, the eye roll when it came out because Reanimator was already a tier one deck. 
Reanimator got Mystical Tutor banned because uh, it was too good. After they unbanned Entomb, they had to ban Mystical Tutor to regain balance. And back then, it was interesting. It was like you played one Inkwell Leviathan, one Imperial Archangel, one Realm Razor. Jingataxis. Uh, yeah, Jingataxis was the hot new printing in New Phyrexia. And then just like shortly after that, we got Grizzlebrand. It was just like, oh, well, then what are we even doing here? It's solved. And I think it's cool that anything could even share the throne with Grizzlebrand, something that could even be discussed about you know, potentially competing for deck space with Grizzlebrand is just freaking awesome. So speaking of competing for deck space, let's talk about Merc Mercurial Spelldancer. So now we've seen this card in action. You know, it's been compared to a Dreadhorde Arcanist. Brian, why don't you start us off here? Because I know you recently did a video with this one. Yeah, my prediction for this would it would be is that it would be better than Ledger Shredder and worse than Dreadhorde Arcanist. Arcanist is banned and Ledger Shredder is unplayable. So that's a big gray space, uh, kind of a safe bet there. And I was right. I do believe it is in a comfortable middle space where it won't fall off into obscurity the way Ledger Shredder did, but it's not close to ban-worthy. I had a lot of fun playing with this card. I My first instinct was to not just put it in Blue-Red Delver. I wanted to double exciting spells. Uh, I put it in a deck with Him to Turok and Collective Brutality. If you double that, you get the modes without having to pay again. Snuff Out was in that deck. Uh, I had a a time warp effect i had a actually i went even crazier I, I played notorious throng which is the prowl time warp uh, i was just trying to have fun with big effects because unlike dreadhorde arcanist mercurial spell dancer doesn't care how much the card costs it just cares that it was oiled up when it hit your opponent and then it will double whatever your next thing is going into the late game with cards like time warp in your deck or some three mana draw three doubling any of that is just bonkers like painful truths go nuts let's go crazy i think that's really interesting design space much more than does this replace delver for a mid-range is it build so i made a youtube short immediately after this happened because i just needed to share it with the world but one of my opponents cast a fire blast on me and then copied it with mercurial spell dancer yeah um and if memory serves i think they had two of them so they copied it twice so one fire blast domed me for 12 and i just fucking died i love that it was beautiful yeah that's the sort of thing that i think is really exciting really fun i don't uh, i mean we saw it with ledger shredder too we saw it with counterbalance is it trying to go a little more mid-range and then it settled back into delver of secrets anyway i think mercurial spell dancer the the exciting spot is like a low curve object for mid-ranger control decks more than it is for tempo decks. Obviously, it'll get played in Delver if you ever need that one or two additional threats. It's a great candidate for that. But uh, that that's where I'm excited to see it. I'm actually, I have a dealer's choice in my recording queue to play whatever I want. And what I want to do is to mirror rogues. I think doubling Morsel Theft or Noggin Whack is freaking sweet. And Mercurial Spelldancer is a rogue. Uh, that That's where I'm going to go with it. I'm in the fun zone with it. I like anything that can empower goofball archetypes without breaking Delver. And I think that's where this card is. Over the last few weeks, I've recorded a lot of different legacy videos specifically. And I think that's because Phyrexia happens to have a lot of cards that are legacy playable that aren't play as playable in other formats, which is kind of weird to say out loud. But 
my point here is that I've played a lot, and I actually haven't seen a single Mercurial Spelldancer resolved against me. I've seen it pitched to Forcible a few times, but I haven't actually seen it in play, so as of right now, I have no opinions on the card. That said, I know that a lot of the Zoomer Delver crew that has done a lot of innovation to the archetype over the last year or so, they're all very high on minor misstep. I've, you know, uh, been in discord calls with people playing in prelims and that entire crew is on like three to four copies of minor misstep at the main deck like they're all very high on it so i've seen a number of minor misstep and i think that card is more legacy playable than i initially gave it credit for i thought it was going to be a really good cyborg card and it looks like it's good enough to be a four of main deck card as of right now yeah it's not mental misstep we're not going to see that toxic like goblins turn one where they play aether vial you misstep it and they misstep back like that's what mental misstep did with the phyrexian mana but minor misstep being like a, a mini spell snare that card has shown up very good i only have i've played against it a lot i only played it once and i only had one copy in my deck and even with that one copy it found a lot of great hits and there were situations where it was like if this was spell pierce or daze or fluster storm i would be better off because now my opponent's casting two drops and my spell is a blank. I think that's a pretty good design. And I don't know if we're in the, the four of main deck, unless you're specifically trying to solve the Delver Mirror. We're going to see that card. My feedback after the league that I did play was cut every uh, flex slot and just make them more minor missteps. Play three or four of that card instead of one. So one thing to note is that it does counter Pyroblast, which a lot of other blue counters aren't great at doing, because like you don't want to force a will of Pyroblast, right? Like it's just kind of awkward. So it does help you win Pyroblast Wars, but I was playing a spicy Eureka Tell deck, and Carpet of Flowers has never felt worse. Because before you would play Carpet and your opponent would either like have to have days online and you can't pay for it or they would have to force a will it and you don't really want to force a will a carpet of flowers so i would like set up my carpet and they would just be like okay minor misstep and it felt awful uh, i just did not love it it kind of took away the edge that carpet even had in that matchup so now i think carpet isn't good against delver anymore assuming that they're on the minor misstep plan and you don't want it against control decks anymore because they're on prismatic ending so i think we've seen the heyday of carpet possibly come to an end so i was actually talking to people about minor misstep in cedh this weekend where that card can do really disgusting things in that context where like oh the winota player has a mana crypt or a soul ring i'm going to minor misstep that and now they are effectively out of the game because i have set them back two turns worth of mana now they don't get to snowball so I I think that card is probably better elsewhere rather than in Legacy. It's not like it's not going to have targets in matchups like the Initiative, right? Like you can still try to use it to take the early artifact mana that people are using to accelerate out their seasoned Dungeoneers or White Plume Adventurers. It, it's going to kind of feel bad because you're trading your one mana spell for a zero mana spell and doesn't feel the best, but sometimes you got to take the targets that you get and hope it works. Yeah, that space is interesting because I'm 0% to ever Force of Will a Chrome Mox on turn one. Uh, that's just not a line I'm willing to take, but I'll minor misstep it if that, because Chrome Mox indicates, at least in the case of initiative, that we're not casting one drops this game. We're going straight into twos and threes, and I'll take what I can get. Uh, against Storm, it's a little more interesting because if I 
miner missed up the chrome mocks sometimes they're they're just running that out there for storm or metalcraft anyway and now i don't get hit the dark ritual so there's a little tension there i think it's a cool card i don't think it's inappropriate and it's really interesting what if your opponent leads on chrome mocks before they've made their land drop for turn you know they're on the draw they have eight cards like do you minor misstep a chrome mox blind or mox diamond like mox diamond is a card that historically i've always wanted to counter but if you force there's just too many screenshots of mox diamond getting force of willed and you just see the the player with a second mox diamond in their hand and uh, they just get the the free money uh you just can't do it but you're more willing to go one for one on it so a card that I was initially higher on in preview season was the Micus of the Gardens. Having played it a bunch in Legacy, the sweet spot of copy my Lion's Eye Diamond to Echo, I did it match one game one on a mulligan to, I believe, four, maybe even three. And I believe I won that game, which was really awesome. But I, I experienced the pinnacle of the card right out of the gate. And then every time I've played it since then, I've just been kind of let down. Uh, the card is not as good as people hope for and i think if you're really on the i need to break micah synth gardens train you should be on fewer actual lands in your deck and higher on cards that make mana that are initial mana sources so like more chrome moxin more mox opals singing spirit guides stuff like that because it takes away a land drop in order to give you mana. So if you're planning on copying the Micus of the Gardens with a land, you're slowing yourself down. And Legacy Storm decks right now do not have the luxury of more time because the format's just so hostile at the moment. So uh, find your mana sources somewhere else, I guess, is my recommendation. The whole time we've been talking about this, I forgot that uh, I got a package today. And I'm showing the camera now uh, that Phil and Brian can see. It's Minor Misstep, Mercurial Spell Dancer, and Micus of the Gardens just in in large quantities so i was excited enough about all of these to purchase them irl i'm glad the gardens isn't broken i think it's a cool thing and i believe phil and i both received a challenge to battle each other to try to break this card which uh, we'll probably discuss details of soon now that they're accessible it brought gyruda back into the conversation i mean that deck probably is still bad but anything that gets gyruda on this deck gets a vote from me that's just a fun thing to exist in the format. This podcast will be live before my video releases because it's in the back of my queue at the moment. But I actually played that deck. I got the updated list from Anurag Das. Anurag, thank you. I appreciate you. I hope you had fun at uh, Magic 30 over the weekend doing your thing. But the deck, I think, was a little bit flawed. And everyone's like, oh, Chalice of the Void is obviously the card you want here because we don't play one drops. But... Legacy has changed a lot since Garuda was initially released, and Solitude is a card that sees a lot of play now. And Chalice of the Void just doesn't actually hit all the removal that you think it does. So I think the deck would be better if you just had four main deck defense grids. That was my big takeaway after playing the deck. Um, I also didn't really get to do the turn one Garuda thing. I did it turn two a couple times, but... In order to turn one Garuda, you have to open on double LED and a Microsynth Gardens, which just like isn't super realistic but hey i hope one of you two can do it in a video at someday but i wasn't able to do it i did record and it's been up for a while now pioneer guy ruta combo and it actually rules in that format i was extremely impressed by that deck nothing to copy with microsynth gardens unfortunately <laughs> there's no led but if you want to play guy ruta you can in in a format i'm going to talk real quick about mirin's safe house which is a spicy one. 
It's a three mana artifact that gains all the activated abilities of lands in your graveyard. I released that video earlier this week and immediately just game one, round one, went off with an infinite, infinite Muta Vault. Safe House, if you have Muta Vault and Griffin Canyons in your graveyard, you can animate Safe House into Muta Vault, then tap the Safe House that now has all creature types to untap target Griffin and give it plus one, plus one, and just go infi with your Safe House. There's a infinite mill combo in the deck too. If you have Scorched Ruins and Ottawara in your graveyard, you can float for a colorless, bounce the mirror in safe house, replay it. And with Altar of the Brood, that's infinite mill. It's infinite storm. It's infinite permanence leaving the battlefield. Whatever you need it to be, it does that. It's just a very cool thing. I think mirror and safe house plus Realms Uncharted is a real engine. At least real enough for like FNM play. I don't know that it's going to change the metagame but if you like that sort of thing and if you've been playing lands and the initiative has you down which i believe it does for most lands players this is an angle to go combo i played it in modern and loved it there the card is really sweet so i will back what brian is saying here so one of the things we mentioned last time around was venerated rot priest our good old sort of pseudo toxic storm card and I know, Bryant, you recorded with this card a couple of times. How is it in practice? You know, is this something that is fast enough? Is it defensible enough? What are your impressions of having played it? I played it in Modern and Legacy. In Modern, it's very, very good. I think that it possibly made the Gruel Breach deck even better. I played it and recorded a number of turn two wins. I believe I had four turn two wins in one league. I shared it to the modern subreddit and they're just like, it's a rarity, not going to happen. I was like, I have video evidence of it happening four times in one league. And somebody accused me of cutting together my matches to make it look like it was one league. <laughs> so that's wow, something that people... Scum Lord. Yeah, so that I guess it's something people think we do, but it was very powerful there. And then I received a list from Jax, because Jax was the first person I saw brewing with this deck. And I worked on it a little bit with Jax and DMs, and we came together for a legacy list. And my honest recommendation here is that it's fine. I think it's along, around the same power level as the... Uh, chain of smog combo decks it's within that space but one thing i would recommend is ditching the green sun zenith package which phil might like a little bit more but what i found was that once again combo decks and legacy don't have the luxury of time at the moment because the format is so powerful and green sun zenith requires a lot of time because it's expensive so you just give your opponents more time to set up removal spells and if you do that, you end up being burned. So I would end up cutting the Green Sun Zenith package. So get rid of the Zeniths, the Arbors, uh, maybe even the Sylvan Safekeeper, and just play higher velocity cards. I recorded with Modern Rot Priest today. It won't be up for a couple days after this podcast is, but yeah, that deck is nutso. The I did not understand the intricacies of it. I just copied the list that Alex McKinley recently 5-0'd with, which I assume you two worked on together. Uh, but I pulled it from a deck dump and assumed that his list would be solid. Uh, there were a couple times where I was like, I don't know if I have the win here, but I don't think it's going to get better. And then I had the win so easily that I wondered if I had it last turn too. And uh, that that deck was just insanely powerful. I didn't understand all the sideboarding nuances. Like. Uh, sometimes I was like, I think I'm just main deck ready here. And then they would rest in peace. And I'm like, oh, uh, now I have to win with combat damage. Whoops. 
Uh, so like I made some mistakes in the league and still uh, put up a positive record and the deck was awesome uh, with unpracticed hands. So get some practice hands on it. I'm sure it's nuts. One thing about that deck that I actually love that Alex didn't realize either until I made fun of him in a Discord call was if you go turn one Dragon's Reach Channeler and just have Ritual Ritual Breach, there's a pretty good chance you can just turn to Natural Breach someone out in that deck. So you have the Venerated Rot Priest Storm Package, but you also just have uh, Dragon's Reach Channeler plus Underworld Breach. So you just have these really powerful things that are both separate that happen to work really well together. And I think that's one of the reasons that deck is so powerful. Yeah, I did in my league get to use Desperate Ritual as Divination on Layaway. I just had a Breach Ritual in my hand with two DRCs in play. I was like, yeah, let's see what happens. <laughs> Divination. Uh, and eventually that card advantage, even though I passed a turn, just burnt off three Ritual mana, didn't use it. It was like attack for three Delirium. Next turn. Okay, cool. Now I Breach, mill two more, and I'm off. So it, that deck does have a lot of really cool play to it. There's also different packages that you'll see. So the version that Alex McKinley and I were playing, it's more along the lines of the Gruel Breach deck. There's dedicated versions that run things like uh, Mutagenic Growth, uh, the Convoke Pump spell. I can't think of its name off the top of my head at the moment. And then the Delirium Land Tutor. I, I'm so bad with card names. Track the Uvenwald? Yeah, uh, Tra Traverse, Traverse the, the Uvenwald. There it is. Yeah. There we go. Uh, so it plays Traverse. There's a lot of different shells at the moment because people are still exploring what this card is capable of. And I think it's just really cool that Phyrexia All Will Be One provided a bunch of cards that are really powerful while not being overly cracked, if that makes sense. Yeah, I don't think there's a bannable card anywhere in here, but we just talked about six or seven different cards and all of them are real in the places that they go. So it's just really solid set for us legacy enjoyers. I would go a step further here and just go really solid set. Um, I encountered so many Phyrexia All Will Be One cards in just matches of Casual and CEDH this weekend, and everything just slapped. Um, the Dominus Cycle, um, I played against the white, red, and black ones. I also... Brian is holding up a Junji Ito Eleshnorn up to the camera, and I also got one of those this weekend uh, for my Preston EDH deck. That card goes really hard, both offensively and defensively. I loved playing with and against that card. Uh, it was very strong. Like, this set was a slam dunk for multiple formats. I don't feel like it's breaking anything. Like, kudos to the design team on this one. I love this set. Yep. The limited's kind of bad, but we're not a limited podcast. I think it is the best set since Kamigawa Neon Dynasty, and I loved that set. That set had a great limited tournament or limited scene as well, but uh, great set, no notes. Uh, I'm excited for the next one, having been in the room as the gigantic movie screen size preview cards hit the wall to raucous applause like we talked about earlier. I, I mean, we're wrapping up this pod. I don't really have a lot to add to this, but... This feels like a culmination, and I'm kind of hoping this just resolves, and then we reboot Magic somewhere else with other people. When they like wrapped the Weatherlight Saga and then gave started introducing Jace and Garrick and stuff, and now it's been what 14 years of that. Like let let's let's nuke it, go somewhere else, tie this up with a bow. I've had enough bolus. I've had enough Phyrexians. I want to see a new story, and I. I hope this culmination results in that. 